This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. My name is Thomas Cordwell. I'm joined by Alexandra Heller, Nicholas, Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood will not be with us tonight or a few nights, in fact, Alex. So it's just you and me at the moment. Let's do it. The good let's news, do it. Let's do it. The good news is we have uh, a special guest presenter who I will get to in a moment. <gasps> the anticipation. I just want to quickly say tonight we're going to be doing a show on documentaries. All documentaries that have been recently released. So over the coming hour we'll be discussing Whitney Houston... Street Cats in Istanbul and the murky world of Julian Assange. But look, first, on behalf of Plato's Cave, I want to pay tribute to Film Buff's forecast. Uh, the, the gang did its final show last Saturday. It's almost as old as Triple R itself. Film Buff's was a pioneering show that did so much to highlight film culture in Melbourne and, for that matter, the rest of Australia and the rest of the world. They paved the way for so many other shows about film, including this one, Plato's Cave, uh, the show you're listening to right now. Uh, both myself and Tara Judah, who was one of the original Plato Cave, Plato's Cave presenters, we both used to be regular reviewers on Film Buff's forecast. Um, Current Plato's Cave presenter Cerise Howard is, was a guest every year to promote the film festival that she's the artistic director of. And even um, back in the day, I used to occasionally fill in as the show's uh, host. It was really instrumental in my training and experience uh, behind the desk and as a presenter. I always found Paul Harris to be encouraging, supportive and welcoming. So, look, we wish him the best and the whole Film Buffs team all the best as well. And we just want to say bravo for such a wonderful legacy. Here, here. But now back to Plato's Cave. We do have a special guest presenter with us tonight. His name is Mike Bartlett. Mike is a journalist who writes on politics, film, pop culture and rock music. He is the arts editor for the Weekly Review, a frequent contributor to screen education and his debut young adult novel, Fire in the Sea, won the 2011 Tex Prize. Most importantly, he is a fellow Doctor Who fan. <laughs> I've heard you described as the gentleman critic. Really? Who, yeah. who's, who said that? Another, well, Thomas. I'll tell uh, yeah, I'll okay. that. I was, was going to be really ambiguous about it. No, it's just Thomas. No, Thomas said that. Yeah, a, few us like away. a few of us say that behind your back, back Mike. It's a, oh, it's, it could a, be worse. it's a lovely reputation. <laughs> oh, thank you. It could definitely be worse. Welcome to Plato's Cave and thank it's, you so much for being here tonight. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, should we get into it then? Let's Let, do Whitney. Mm. Let's go. Let's go. Whitney, Can I Be Me? is a documentary biopic about Whitney Houston, the enormously popular American pop singer who was at her peak during the late 1980s and 1990s. This new film looks at how Houston was initially produced and promoted to deliberately downplay her black identity, her rise to fame and success, her personal life, and the events that contributed to her death at the age of 48 in 2012. Now, two directors are credited on this film, videographer Rudy Dolzal, who, whose until now unused footage of Houston's 1999 European concert tour makes up a large portion of the film, but also English filmmaker Nick Broomfield, who is best known for his 1990s and early 2000 documentaries, especially his films about serial killer Elaine Munros, and his other music documentaries, Kurt and Courtney, and also Biggie and Tupac. And I have to say, I'm not exactly a Whitney Houston fan. It was Nick Broomfield's Nick, mm. I'm saying, yeah, Nick Broomfield's presence on this film which made me very interested in seeing it. What about you two? What 
were you, Mike, were you keen to see the Witness Houston doco when I said to you that's what you'll be talking about tonight? No, not at all. Uh, but I, I, do always, um, <laughs> I do always like watching documentaries about things I have no particular interest in. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? It is, particularly when you're uncovering someone's passion. So um, I was talking to Alex earlier, and there's that example of uh, Closer to the Edge, which was about the tourist trophy, the motorcycle racing on the Isle of Man, which I had no interest in watching that film. It was just, uh, you know, for an hour and a half, I became a passionate fan of motorcycle racing. I didn't feel quite the same about Whitney after this film uh, although it's clear she's a phenomenal talent uh, and I, I appreciated getting more exposure to that. I think previously my knowledge of Whitney was pretty much limited to her cinema appearances notably Yikes. The, bodyguard. the Bodyguard Waiting yeah. to Exhale Waiting to Exhale which uh, is or briefly mentioned exhale. here. Waiting to Exhale. There's a lot of interesting places you can put the emphasis on that title like, wait, wait. I've thought about it. Into ex- <laughs> yeah. Waiting to exhale. Um, yes. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm just saying, the bodyguard, yeah. yeah. Very, very minimal. But um, she's clearly, a, you know, as I said, a phenomenal talent. That early footage of her performing when she's 18 and just the, um, just the, the power of this voice, this sort of natural, um, you know, the, the, the richness of this natural talent, I think, just is, is quite breathtaking, uh, even in that sort of rough, grainy, um, grainy footage that we see there. Uh, and likewise, the, there's another bit at the beginning, some of the concert footage that, uh, that Rudy shot where she pauses uh, halfway through or towards the end of uh, the song that I know best of hers, which is uh, I Will Always Love You, the Dolly Parton cover. Uh, it's just this really moving moment where she sort of finishes singing the song and you see her just... You're not quite sure whether she's actually... whether it's a deliberate pause, whether she's pausing for dramatic effect. It certainly is a dramatic moment. But you can see her kind of psyching herself up to do that, that kind of ceiling bursting, outpouring at the end but she's like an athlete preparing to do this great undertake some great physical feat and you become aware as the film goes on how much of that is emotional preparation as much as anything that she actually does put so much into into her voice into music which is as the, the film sort of says deliberately bland pop music mm. i mean that, that first album they say she's targeted at the white mainstream american audience so they strip away anything that could be perceived as being r&b or too as they say too black sounding so they, they want something that's more like Joni mitchell Yep. Than, uh, than anything particularly R&B. But as you say, more Joni Mitchell, less Aretha Franklin. Absolutely. Along those lines, isn't which, it? Yeah. Which, is, which is bizarre, and you see that mm. becoming this, um, this ongoing conflict for her, this sense that she is expected to be kind of the princess die of pop. Gosh, um, that's a perfect description. That she's, yeah. That's a beautiful description. That she's just having to sort of uh, maintain this, this perfect dream fairy tale. Uh, porcelain figure, this porcelain. kind of eunuch almost. You know, yes, sort of, yeah, absolutely. P- pure symbol, pure symbolism. Abso- absolutely, you know, purely symbolic realm that she exists in. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think you know, eunuch is a good word there. They, the film does touch on her sexuality in, in a way that is slightly um, speculative and and uh, uncomfortably like hearsay at at times. I think it's one of those films that critiques the tabloid treatment of her while kind of indulging in it a right. little bit as well. Isn't I think it? That's, yeah, yeah. that's Broomfield's shtick, though. Yeah, and um, to be honest, I thought that I mean, the kind of you know he's he's such a self-reflexive filmmaker traditionally in in the way that you know he kind of puts himself in the story and mm. um, with Kurt and Courtney and and Biggie and Tupac, you know, they're very much these kind of sort of expose things and I, I I did feel that he kind of held back a little bit with the Whitney story that I felt was a tonally appropriate mm. um you know it was it 
it, it, I don't know whether it was just that he's a little older now or that perhaps, I don't know, there just seemed to be something a little more sacred about the story to him. It's a bit, it is, um, he is a bit reverent, I think. Yeah, actually. yeah. And I mean, I guess because the tragedy of the narrative of this, this human being's life is just so inescapably grim. I mean, it's just such a, such a terrible, terrible story. And, and he, pumps it in so well and I guess this is where the big comparison to Amy comes from in that mm. there's this sense of inevitability all the way through this documentary that, yeah. that this is this is you know that the path is set and there is very little that can happen to get her off that path and the few things in her life that might have done that are consciously thwarted by the people supposed to care for her yeah. and I think that we can say the same thing about Amy Winehouse and that's mm. what that documentary really pushes to in that the family the people that are meant to be caring from her I think this um there's a Whitney, lot of parallels, isn't there? Yeah, this Whitney Houston documentary is very unrestrained in its attack on Sissy Houston in particular. I was mm. really surprised because usually she's treated with reverence as well. You know, it's I've um, Sissy Houston being Whitney Houston's has, mother, mother, who was a famous gospel singer. Oh, yeah, thank you for that yep. clarification. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was really interested. I've been thinking about Whitney lately. We have an article in the in an upcoming issue of Senses of Cinema that talks about the original film clip for Greatest Love of All and the reuse of that particular song in Tony Erdman. And it's a short piece, but it's a beautiful piece. Mm. Um, Ivan Krokamp, great writer. And it's a simple little observation, but it, there's actually a lot of oomph into it, like why that particular song is used in Tony Erdman. And he goes back to the to the video, which is all Whitney Houston and her mother and these flashbacks to, you know, child Whitney um, in the original video and how that kind of parallels with what, with what you know, the, the inter, um, interpersonal relationships between a parent and a child in Tony Erdman. So I had Whitney on the brain when I kind of went in right. to see this. Um, and I just, I just found this devastating. I mean, it's a story that that did have a really strong effect on me. Uh, I was really relieved that he did avoid that sort of tabloid sensationalist thing because that has just riddled this woman's life so horrendously. Mm. Um, past her death, you know, right into the death of her daughter, Bobby Christina. Yeah, I didn't know about that. Um, that's, her, her, that's still unfolding. If you, there's, there's been news about that in the yeah. last couple of days, um, which is. Just so devastating. We should um, just say, for people who aren't aware of Nick Broomfield, um, he he's sort of been regarded by many as a precursor to figures like Michael Moore and Louis Thoreau and Morgan Spurlock. You know, he, he used to put himself in his films very much and he kind of had his gonzo style. Mm. I mean, in, in Curtin Courtney's very famous where there's actually a scene where he confronts Courtney Love because she wouldn't have anything to do with his film and he confronts her at a very public event. Um, I've always had very mixed feelings about yeah, him as a too. filmmaker. Yeah, me too. And mm. I was really sceptical about him doing this. Yeah. Um, it's that, it, it is that intrigue thing. It's almost like that Mike Moore, you don't trust him to pull it off, but you kind of want to see the car crash if it fails. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. That's how I feel about Broomfield. And yeah, I mean, you know, with Kurt and Courtney, it's like bring on the carnival, you know, sit down with the popcorn, bring it on. Yeah. But there was something and it's about... it's so full of conspiracies, that Yeah, film exactly. Yeah. Um, this film, I just, I, I liked how it kind of respected the tragedy. I know that's a really corny thing to say, but... Um, it didn't hold back on pointing fingers. I think that there was a really key relationship in, in Whitney Houston's life that really could have helped her. I thought that it was actually quite... It's one of the most uh, reasoned... It's not really a defence of Bobby Brown, but it's the most... It's very um, sympathetic. Yeah, I thought it was actually quite compassionate to his point of view um, mm. and the context of their meeting in relation to her getting booed at the Soul Train Awards, yep. the kind of selling out and not being black enough. And mm. I think that's where this film really... Um, 
really is something quite different from Amy, um, which again I think is a really obvious point of comparison. But the racial stuff, I think it's really great how he just digs right into that about this, you know, the the damage to her psychologically and emotionally. I think that stems from this being forced to be white, being seen as selling out, and her just wanting to be black. Can I be me? You know, this... It's described as the turning point, that, yeah. isn't it? When she's booed at the, the Soul Train Awards, these R&B awards for essentially to say not Which is the night that she met Bobby enough, Brown. Which is also the night she meets Bobby Brown. Mm, and yeah. I was surprised how sympathetic, and I know the film has been criticised for being a little too sympathetic towards Bobby Brown, given the, the allegations of domestic violence. Yeah, which do- didn't come up in the film. Although well, there's that strange thing really with Ike and Tina Turner, which was... Yeah. I mean, like, it, it almost was such a strange... That they play act Mike and Tina... I can... Uh, Tina Turner, yeah, yeah which yeah. was. I wonder if there's legal reasons I couldn't mention the because I remember there being domestic violence yep. allegations yep. at one point. So yep. I wonder if there's legal reasons I can't mention that in the I think film. He touches on it in his memoir as well, and mm. he talks about just being. I think it's when he was trying to get sober, but uh, goes out of his way to say that he's not, as in his words, a wife beater. Um, but I was surprised it wasn't touched on at all, given that I think... And perhaps it is trying to steer clear of that tabloid coverage that Alex was talking about. And I think that when we think of the tabloid coverage, that's one of the the most notable... you know, spikes of interest, I suppose, was around around that. I mean, there is always something to me, slightly something slightly exploitative about these films. And Absolutely. Amy is a good, another yep. good example, mm-hmm. uh, where the subject is someone who's lived very much in the private eye but isn't around to defend themselves, um, particularly when the film does rely heavily on tabloid coverage. This film doesn't do that as much as Amy did. There was something about the, the last third of Amy's, uh, the film Amy, um, the covering the, the later stages of Amy Winehouse's life, where it was almost entirely tabloid footage to the extent that it implicated you as the viewer because you wanted to get closer to her and you wanted to, to be that. You wanted to be as much, you know, at the, in the heart of this breakdown, but at the same time you were aware that you were part of the problem. And like, that's kind of what I liked about Amy, actually. I yeah. think Amy, because, and Amy was very overt about this is a film constructed purely of footage that exists and so it takes you on that kind of roller coaster of how the media embraced it where this is a slightly more traditional documentary in that you've got the talking heads Hmm. um yeah i i was really quite staggered by how much i enjoyed well you know enjoyed as you can this film but how much i admired it and and was impressed by it i Hmm. i I think um brimfield showed a lot of restraint where he maybe hadn't before and i think it was very respectful i I think that the key difference between this story and the amy story is the stuff about race that Hmm. and amy was able to craft her own image to a a large degree which was fascinating but whitney had an image pushed uh, upon her and that's where the title of the film comes from whitney can i be me apparently she often said can i be me and in the film we discovered that her saying that so much becomes even a joke to the people around her as if she's constantly whinging but it's obviously Mm. a i mean that was painful when you found out people were making fun of her for saying can i be me the other very painful bit is when you found out what happened to the um relationship between her and her father which was such a strong force originally and that went south and it's Mm. yeah it's it's genuinely uh tragic i I wish the film spent more time on the racial stuff because i thought that was really really interesting Mm. i I think because there's so much material to cover yeah um i mean i guess that's the thing when you live that much of your life in the public eye there's so much to cover because the sexuality stuff again was touched on but not really delved into um and i think again it's trying to avoid that that tabloid, you know, was she bisexual or wasn't she? And it kind of yeah. gives you enough to make a pretty pretty strong decision. But even just the way that she dealt with men, there's a, a clip that they included, and I'm really glad they included it. It was one of my it's one of my go to YouTube, 
you know, funny videos, which is her being interviewed on French television with um, my idol, Serge oh, Gainsbourg. Oh, God, Jesus. That and was... Serge, um, Serge is quite drunk. Every, I mean, He's you guys probably, It's just such a distressing... But I've always yeah. watched that clip as a funny, oh, look, look how hammered and what a lech Serge Gainsbourg yeah. is. But watching it in the context of a Whitney Houston documentary, and I've seen that footage so many times, right. uh, was really fascinating because I just... I was focused less on him and more on her. And the way that she dealt with it was just incredible where she's physically pushing him away with one hand he's he's rich he's pouring her i mean it's disgusting it's Mm. just horrific you know Mm. and she's trying to be pleasant she's trying to be polite she's trying to be upbeat she's pushing him away with one hand but with her other hand she's patting him gently on the hand that she's pushing away and it's like to me that's almost like the the iconic moment of how that woman had to live her life like get away from me yeah but i'm a nice Right. It's a woman who's been yeah. forced oh, to push horrific. men away without making it look aggressive because that's how her handlers have told her to behave or, it, or, or she realises that she can't stand up to this kind of stuff too overtly. And it's such mm. an intuitive movement on her part yeah. and she's so young and, yeah. and you know, in, the, in, the, you know in, in response to this great superstar, the great drunk lech Serge Gainsbourg, um, it was just fascinating to be put in a position to really rethink that footage. That's amazing. Um, that and it really shocked yeah. me and I felt... You know, it did things to me. Like, it really made me rethink a lot of, um, you know, the, the, when we see little these dumb little clips that people post to Facebook or whatever, we, we kind of take them at face value. You know, we do have a bias and just this tiny little gesture. It's all about context, that isn't was it? So, mm. this, this gesture was just so intuitive. There was mm. nothing about it that was forced or thought through and it's like she's done that before. She's lived her life pushing away but consoling at the same time. So it sounds like we were all kind of on side with this film. I'm really glad I watched it. It's had I'm really glad I watched sort it. of mixed... It's kind of had slightly mediocre reviews. A lot of people... I know one person complained there wasn't enough music in it and I thought, no, it's well, fine. I did wonder about that, though. And I wondered if there wasn't enough focus on what went right. And enough focus on the fact that she did have no, this that, amazing that is a talent. That is, a really, elsewhere. Yeah. that is a really significant okay. point, I think. Um, it does focus on the, the negatives, doesn't it? And Because one of the things I love about, you know, I watch a lot of music documentaries, one of the things I, I love about them is rediscovering or, or uh, an artist or discovering an artist in the way you've never heard them before. Just hearing people talk passionately. Uh, I guess I was saying this a bit earlier about, you know, a topic I'm not interested in. Hearing people talk about music or films that I have dismissed um, can be a great way to to see them from another perspective, or to actually discover a new enthusiasm for them. You know, I think of that Oasis documentary, Supersonic. I wasn't a massive yes. Oasis fan, but I came out of that with new appreciation for them. It, yeah, it very, me too. Me too. The film, yeah. very, that film, very cleverly ends after their second album, so it's like nothing happened after <laughs> that point. Everything's fine. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so I guess I wanted a bit more of that from this film to actually tell you why this woman was so amazing, and why I think her that music would, was so important. That to would fit into the narrative. So I wonder if there were music, if there were rights things at one point. I mean, earlier in the film, they'd say, you know, she really broke the ceiling for people like Beyonce. Mm-hmm. And then later on, they mention um, her kind of turning to quote unquote more black music like Be My Baby Tonight. But we don't get to hear the song. It's true. You know, we it's don't not hear much that musical journey. Yeah. Um, you know, so this sort of Beyonce thing is flat. I think it, but it's, not it's gone unofficial. With. This was an unofficial doco made without the support right. of the people. So a lot of the people they can discussed. just use the live music. They could use the live music from the documentary, yeah. but not other. I don't know. But yeah. The, 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 yeah, there are no clips, are there? That there are strange absences in this film, yeah. despite mm. liking it. There were, there were, yeah, it's interesting. Sissy Houston probably wasn't down with giving it a lot of I access I can't imagine to, she would have yeah. been thrilled about the making of this film, no. Mm. We've been talking about Whitney, Can I Be Me? It's a documentary that's actually on general release at the moment around Melbourne. You're here on Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Mike, Alex and Thomas. 
You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. Kedi, which is, Turk, which is the Turkish word for cat, is a Turkish documentary about the relationship between the human and feline residents of Istanbul, which has a large street cat population. The film is the debut feature of filmmaker Jada Turun, and it's a series of vignettes about the various cats of Istanbul and the people who interact with them. There is a lot of close-to-the-ground cinematography to mimic the perspective of cats and lots of musings on the symbiotic relationship between people and cats, uh, where even God is frequently evoked. <laughs> so I've actually seen this film a couple of times now. Yeah, we touched on it um, on a, one of our Myth shows last year. It screened at year. Myth last year, uh, we yeah. We spoke for a few minutes when uh, Christos Chokas was guesting with Cerise and I on, I think, our second Myth show last year. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, we do about 3,000 films in those episodes, so it was sort of brushed over quickly, but there was a lot of love for Kenny. Christos was a big fan. Well, Christos I, I, went bananas for I think for I may it. have sat next to him in the screening. Oh. Yeah. It, it, it was, he said he was quite emotional. It was a day screening. So I work for Miff, uh, just to put that out there. It was, it, was a, it was a day screening and most of the office snuck out to go to see this day screening of, of Kenny because it was late in, the fe- late in the festival and we all needed something soothing. And it was mm-hmm. quite fun to sort of see who was in the audience, like, oh, you're a cat person as well. <laughs> and it was a sold-out session for a daytime screening during the week which is really, really unusual and, um, yeah, absolutely captivated and I loved watching it again. It's, it, it is what it says on the packet. It's an hour and a half of cats in Istanbul. Um, it's nothing more, it's nothing less. Mm. And it's, it just, I really like how it emphasises the relationship between, not just between people and animals, which I think, you know, it doesn't really get into a kind of, it doesn't talk about anthropomorph. I can't even say it. No, anthropomorphism. Thank oh, you. thank you. I can't thank say it you. either. <laughs> um, or, you know, there's nothing particularly analytical. There are no talking heads that really go into that kind of stuff. But I think that there's a lovely poetry about the relationship between living things in a certain space that really appeals to me about this film. It's 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 a slight film in a way, but it's, you know, it's, it's called Cat. It's about Cat. So it's mm. kind of going to be. It's not a gritty, incisive you know, hard-hitting documentary, but it's there's just a lovely, yeah, poetry about about space and and identity and the way that we move with big things and small things that I just find really quite touching. Mm. Are, are you a cat person? Oh, totally. Yeah, as shout as out to Rumpole and Esme who are triple R subscribers. Oh, my, so, my is, cats. so is Miguel. I'll give her a shout out. <laughs> Um, in fact, for the rest of the weekend after seeing this film, every time Miel sort of wound herself around my legs and meowed, I sort of asked myself, have I just been smiled on by life? Or, yeah. <laughs> or when she's in the litter train making lots of noise there, I think, is she communing with God now or does that happen <laughs> other times? Uh, are you a cat person, Mike? No, not at all. Okay, no, well, I'm really uh... curious to know now what a non-cat person you would be. I'm, I, I feel... Outnumbered, I, f- I feel oppressed. No, I um, I, I'm, abs- I'm not. Ca- I have actually had cats in the past. As, as a, you're not. Uh, I'll disclose that. Well, I'm slightly anti-cat. I don't, I don't know where that's really come from, but I, to the extent that I'm actually slightly suspicious of people that do love cats. This is, you know, this to is me, where the show gets weird. You're, to me, it looks a little like an abusive relationship where you're doing all the loving and the cat is just giving you disdain. I don't know. But then, you know, I think, do I like dogs because I need to be loved, you know, unconditionally? So, Well, the answer is yes. There's, so. So there's, that's revealing, I think. Perhaps it just depends which, you know, side you fall on the S&M spectrum, I guess, depending on whether yeah, you're a cat or a dog I'd person. I'd like to be abused, yeah. <laughs> but, I, but look, I, I did like this. It was... Oh, 
it's uh, you know it's it's as as uh, Alex said, it's a very slight film, but I liked the way that the cats were used as as vessels for meaning. Really, depending, you, you saw the role really the animals play for for humans to some extent. Um, we see here the cats are interpreted. It's not overstated, but the cats are sort of interpreted as as a metaphor for the city itself, or for some particular aspect of humanity, for femininity, uh, for innocence, for mischief, and for love. Love plays a a big part in this you get the sense that the people and their cats seem to represent different forms of of love um and i wonder that really what the film was saying is that in in cats or in our pets we we see the form of love that we need you know there's one man here that talks about his cats in a really quite romantic almost unsettlingly so a, a very romantic kind of kind of fashion or there's the young woman who who sees in cats um this, who sees cats as a kind of feminine icon because she she sees in them this outdated kind of femininity that the city now seems to seems to lack. So I like that. I like this idea that the way we think about cats reveals something about us, something intrinsic about us. I think someone says that if you can't love animals, then you can't love humans. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, which I think right. is a pretty pretty fair observation yeah. actually I think I really believe that and I, I think that's where this film I actually think this film does have, have a bit of depth I, there's something yeah. very poetic and bordering on the spiritual about <laughs> about this film and I think it, it, it is that symbiotic relationship between um, humans and animals I mean and there's not too many animals that humans have this relationship with I mean you, I think you could make a similar film about dogs possibly a film like this about horses but I don't think there are too many animals that have this very close companionship with humans mm. and there is a great scene where somebody describes the you know communing with a cat like talking to an alien where <laughs> yeah you kind of have an intrinsic understanding but you're never going to fully communicate with them because there is something just so unknowable about them the little what triangle is... heads with their big eyes yeah, yeah there's it, something they enigmatic look like grace, about don't they? <laughs> enigmatic about cats they yeah. they are an animal that has that complexity then you know as i said there's a, a simplicity to a, a dog you know you know when the dog's happy you know when the dog loves you but the, the cat is a little more aloof it, it does have an enigma or a mystique perhaps that um, i can see why it appeals I was yeah, reading up about people. the. Um, <laughs> I was reading up about the making of this film, um, and obviously the cinematography of Keddy is a large part of it. Mm. You know the kind of amazing contraptions that they would build to be able to film at cat level. Um, and right. you, lots of remote control things and lots of strange gadgets. Uh, so so they w- could wasn't get... someone just carrying a camera along the ground? <laughs> more sophisticated. <laughs> um, but what I love is for Keddy, they they actually. I like the. I kind of want to see the making of Keddy once I read this because it almost sounds like a kind of weird reality TV show where I think they started off with 35 cats that they were focusing <laughs> on, but they only end up with seven in the film. Is there only uh, seven? Yeah, they, they oh, focus, on, like they focus yep. on seven main cats. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, like, what went down? This was not revealed in any of the any of the interview material that I came across. Like this 35 whittled down to seven. I mean, not literally whittled down. I think that the cats, of all, they're all, all those 35 cats are <laughs> They happy. survived the yeah, audition process. Yeah. They did not get voted off the island. Um, <laughs> but ha- how were those decisions made about which exactly, cats got in like which what, didn't? Exactly, like what happened? Like, I wanted, well, it they, would have been contrasting Did they get the rose? And, you know, yeah. like, I, mean, I just, I love the idea of the, the making of Keddy. You know, a, little, had, a little tin of tuna <laughs> allows them to stay, yeah. I... And I think that is one of the strengths is there's a diversity of experiences there as well. There's mm. quite a few different people. And I, I really like the fact that it started off with guys, uh, uh, male cats. And, and the, I think the first one's a male cat and then the second person is, is, a, is a male cat lover. And you had lots of men talking about cats because that has been um, 
such a stereotype and a cliche for a while, mm. what, as in the crazy cat lady idea, which he's still spoken about very jokingly, and it's a little bit damaging, I think. I think it creates a, a slightly nasty stereotype, but um, it, it's sort of a recent thing that, you know, there's a lot, plenty of men out there who are crazy cat men who, who, who do adore their cats as well. And Elliot it's, Gould in The Long Goodbye is my favourite crazy cat man. Oh, one of the Bless. best cats in cinema is Elliot yeah, Gould. Everybody the onto goodbye, YouTube yeah. after the show. Look up Elliot Gould, yeah. Long Goodbye Cat. Best mm. 10 minutes of your life. But I enjoyed yeah, seeing these guys with yeah. their cats being very, very, very sweet and, and some very practical as well. And and I think there's one guy who talks quite openly about, you know, he understands the exchange here. I provide food and shelter. The cat just gives me lots of affection and love and, and, and that's that symbiotic relationship right. which I find very sweet. It is interesting that, that you touched on the gender stuff there and it reminded me of I met someone once who, as a child, believed that all dogs were boys and all cats That's were girls. That's a common like thing. They yeah, were the same I, I, species. That's a common that. thing. I thought yeah. that. And you thought that. Yeah, and I thought that lions were dogs. I refused to accept that lions were cats. I thought it was because they were boys. I, I don't even ask. Isn't that like, interesting? Yeah. Mm. I, the Chevy Chase <laughs> film, Oh Heavenly Dog, he comes back reincarnated as a dog and at the end of the film, um, his love interest comes back reincarnated as a cat. So that <laughs> that weird gendering Spoilers. of cats and dogs. Yeah. <laughs> My, my dad loved that film. It was just one of those films that was on all the time at home, yeah. <laughs> that and Ben-Hur. Um, yeah, I've got nothing more to, to contribute yeah. to the I Heavenly Dog discussion. No, I'd like to see it again, though. It's, a, beautiful, it it's a beautiful film. As Alex yeah. said, the cinematography is, is stunning and it, you know, it made me want to visit Istanbul in a way thinking, that news reports rarely do. But, um, mm. you know, just absolutely, those sweeping shots over the city, absolutely beautiful. And beautiful I think that's visuals. what Christos's point really was, is that it really captures the city. You know, yeah. really, like, Keddie is just a great film, not just about cats, but about Istanbul. Mm. It tells you, you know, so much about the people, so much about the place. I'd love to see something similar about dogs in Athens. Um, I haven't been to Istanbul, but I have been to Athens, and that's got a similar uh, a, a street dog population, and I think you could do a similar story there, actually. Right. Or Bangkok, that's quite similar. Uh, with like dogs again? Dog or? Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. I was yep. thinking that would be interesting. Although possums what... in North Fitzroy. <laughs> <laughs> Bastards. Bastards. Although what is, it is worth pointing out is these stray cat and dog populations, it, there's often a lot of sadness and problems behind that. I mean, Rome is a city, again, I've spent a bit of time in which there's a stray cat population, mm. and, and the stories behind that are often really quite sad and, and tragic and often to do with human carelessness. This film sort of doesn't address the fact that why aren't these cats being being spayed, you know, why, why aren't they being neutered and, and, and right. we don't see any of the, the, the traumas that street animals often experience it is a very, as much as I adore this film, it, it does very much show us the rosy glass version it, it does, I suppose the only place the film really alludes to that is with the, the man in the junkyard oh, that's true. who says yep. that people dump their cats there because they know that he'll care for them but, you know, that's kind of affirming the way that it's done. You because he's there to care for absolutely. them Absolutely, yeah Yeah, yeah. 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 Regardless of that, I thought this was a gorgeous film. Go and see Ketty. It's and see a nice Ketty. cat movie. It is good for the soul. And as we've discovered with Mike, even if you're not necessarily into Even cats, if you're a dog person. Even if you're one of them, you can still <laughs> like this film. You're going to enjoy <laughs> Ketty. Let's play another cat song. This is a, from the first Pink Floyd album. This is a song about Sid Barrett's cat, Lucifer Sam. Three. Triple. Risk is the latest film by American documentary filmmaker Laura Poitras, whose previous film, which we discussed on Plato's Cave, 
was Citizen Four. That film documented her secret meetings with Edward Snowden and the process in which he released classified National Security Agency documents. Poitras became part of that story. She was even played by Melissa Leo in Snowden, the Oliver Stone film from last year, which we also discussed. Citizen Four was in fact an offshoot of Poitras's bigger film project on WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, which she has been working on for six years. So this film, Risk, is the result, and it covers Assange's sexual assault and rape allegations, his asylum in the Embassy of Ecuador in London, the release of damaging files against Hillary Clinton, and the beginning of the ongoing FBI investigations into Russia's interference in the 2016 American presidential elections. I mean, it feels like the film finished like two or three weeks ago. The original version of this film was screened at the Cannes Film Festival last year and it was considered quite favourably by Assange and his WikiLeaks followers. This version that has now been theatrically released has been changed somewhat and and as a result Assange and Poitras have had a complete falling out. He's not a fan. No, well, I don't think she's a fan of these anymore either. A lot has changed in the last 12 months since the Khan release. doesn't want her to talk about how they've fallen out as well. He's quite big on censorship for uh, a man who's not very big on censorship. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you weren't sure how you felt about Julian Assange, this film would really clarify that quick sticks. Mm. He doesn't come across very nicely at all. Well, that's interesting you should say that because I still don't quite know what I think of his actions. I don't like him. Mm -hmm. I would... Could, I don't think I could stand being in the same room with him <laughs> ever, um, but I'm still very hazy about all this, and I think it's because it's ongoing, and I, I think yes. to the film's credit, it doesn't actually make any definitive statements. Right. I, I was like Ray Wise in Twin Peaks watching this, where I was just weeping and screaming the word Laura repeatedly. Like, I just... I don't know. This film just feels unfinished to me. It just yeah. feels like she put it out because she's sick of it and she wants... It almost felt like an exorcism. Right. She just wanted it gone. She just wants this film out of the way. And she, to her credit, I'm, I'm really conflicted about this film. I think that she's obviously a, rem- a remarkable journalist, let alone a, a documentary filmmaker, and there's extraordinary access um, to Assange. And it's amazing the things... I mean, there's clearly a performative element to the man and the things that he says in front of the camera really mm. are quite striking. It's like, and he's playing up to the camera at all times. He's totally aware of being watched. Um, Do you but, think? I, I had times. Oh, I, I was, I was wondering whether he was just really naive, particularly when he's talking to the to uh, the lawyer, who's a woman, about these sexual allegations, and she's trying to say to him, "You need to, to look at the way that you talk about that women. Is, that is the you need worst to change thing your language. I've seen this year. That scene. It just was awful. And he keeps interrupting her. And and talks about how these women are going to be reviled and how he's got this great fan base who are going to turn on these women. And you can see her sort of give up, can't you? It, that, that sequence, um, he, he starts talking about um, these allegations being a radical feminist conspiracy. Right. Mm. But later in the film, and I just don't know, if you were... Um, if you were in a position that you were being falsely accused of sexual assault, would you, in a documentary, talk about this as a sex scandal mm. and how good that sex scandal is for your image. Mm. What a... Oh, no, no, I don't, yeah. don't want to hang out with Julian Assange. No. I didn't, I didn't come out of this a big fan, but I have to say I don't know whether I came out of it as a big fan of Laura Petraeus either. And I admire her honesty in the film. I think that she talks very 
uh, frankly about her relationship to these people, not just Assange, but I think even more significantly perhaps is Jacob Applebaum. There's a big uh, revelation and her, at the her, end. Yeah. yeah, and her relationship mm. with Applebaum. And Applebaum has not um, been immune to these to similar accusations mm. as Assange. He's... Um, Sexual misconduct, I yeah, think be just straight up bullying, and and you know, again, not nice and allegations. And is that some of the new stuff in the film? I think it is. I think that's some of the stuff that happened after the 2016 yeah. Khan screening. She, right. she yeah. sounds quite um, shaken by it, and I like her honesty and her frankness in talking about how you know I thought these people were one thing and they ended up being something else. Mm. But the film itself, just I mean, the story's not over. It it just feels so rushed. It just felt like she just wanted it away from her right. and I appreciate that you know that this was her life for six years um, going from a point where she had, I think she starts off with a pretty kind of you know awestruck with WikiLeaks and with Assange and what they're doing and you can just feel that just deteriorate the closer that she gets to them mm. um, I think Sarah Harrison is her name the attorney that uh, yes. is she an attorney the, the, the younger one yeah the, the woman that was with um, Snowden from WikiLeaks um, oh, yes, and yep. who can't return to the UK yes. I think that of all of them she's the one that actually comes out the best I would love to see a documentary on her yeah good call um, I thought that she you know there's footage of her on a train in Berlin mm. or on a tram and I thought I, I really want to know more about you you're not one of these guys I agree she I think she's the most most interesting character. I did like the way that Laura does. Um, there's little readings from her journal, and she talks about the way that she thinks she's chasing one story, and then she realizes that actually the story is this other thing, and it becomes more about the the allegations. And and yes, as you say, she starts off seeing them much as they see themselves, which is sort of freedom fighters, you know, um, these sort of these rebels with with a with a cause. But I guess what comes out of that is you see that. Um, although it, I think it is largely unspoken in the film that these people who consider themselves really principled, um, really driven, are kind of blinded to the consequences of their actions because they because they think they've got a good cause that kind of justifies everything. And you see how it creates how how being driven, how being principled can create a kind of blind spot in your your ethics. I mean, Assange is told that he's toxic to his cause, so he should really step down. He's doing more damage than good, but he's he's incapable of. Of doing that, he's as someone tries to advise him. One of the members of WikiLeaks try to advise him, saying, "You should apologise to these women. You're doing a lot of damage." And he can't hear it. You know, he just again shuts down that that uh, that discussion. That that was touched on in the Alex Gibney documentary, "We Steal Secrets: The Story of WikiLeaks." Which, again, I think we covered that on the show. And that's something Alex Gibney looks at a lot. With these people who see themselves as doing so much good in the world that they feel it gives them a free pass on committing other sins. Right. And he talked about this extensively in uh, "Mia Maxima Culpa," which is a documentary about um, uh, the priests abusing children. And, he, and I've forgotten the exact terminology, but there's a word to describe people who think they are just so holier than that that they've done so much good that these sins are now covered. And he was sort of saying there's a bit of that with Julian Assange. He also applied it to Lance Armstrong too in that documentary as well. It's this thing that Gibney has started exploring that's interesting. And I think we do see a sense of that, that um, Assange has lived this very strange life of kind of hacking and living in secret and, and hiding and dealing with governments and spy agencies that he, I think... The impression I get just from watching films like this is he just has no understanding of how to deal with humans, especially not women, in in, in Mm. ways that are really, really frightening. One of the strangest things I've seen on film this year is the sequence in in risk in, in this documentary between... It's just a conversation between Julian Assange and Lady Gaga at the Ecuador embassy. I was 
I was almost fetal. I was just so <laughs> uncomfortable. It's like I, I, I'm watching something that I never want to even exist on the same planet that I live on. And it I was, was just torturous. These, yeah. these. I don't even know what was going on in this dynamic. It's like these these people that are just intuitive performers. Yeah trying to communicate about ideology and just this explosive stupidity that resulted from it was just um I don't, I, was, I it was she, so directionless it was so yeah, it, it did, weird it, it was, was just, stupid the whole thing was stupid yeah. wasn't it well, like I'm dumber yeah. I'm dumber for watching it like her, um, her questioning was dumb his answers were dumb and it's not that I think that these are, I don't mean to to you know to dismiss lady gaga not at all, you no. know, I would never no. do that um but it was like they just... These, what the hell was going on? These people are just yeah. these bubbles of fame yeah. and they just have no capacity for actual human interaction. Right. And trying to, you know, build this sort of fake encounter around politics of all things was just... It was so stupid. Well, she's trying to humanise him, isn't she? You know, tell us about your feelings. I have no feelings. Uh, and, uh, you know, <laughs> so he, and he's trying to say, don't treat me like a human. I'm special. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm on this mission. Yeah. I'm, you know, what I'm doing is more important than having feelings. Um, but it's and we touched on this before. But I think the thing that really struck me about this film is is the misogyny that's rife within uh, within the, the Coda community. And and think Applebaum that comes out really clearly because the uh, the bit that was most uncomfortable for me, I think, is this scene where he's tutoring. Oh God, yes. Uh, yes. It in Tunis. He's, uh, he's tutoring people on how to oh God, conduct yeah, yeah. themselves online. <laughs> so, so and he's, he's working with these young Islamic women and he says it's like having sex but not wearing a condom and goes into this extended, really uncomfortable safe sex metaphor. Yeah, or the condom breaking. Or the con- it's something yeah, it's awful. It's just such uh, an inappropriate she metaphor. Ho- she holds yeah. that. It's amazing yeah. filmmaking. And yeah. she really holds the And he's the, leaning over. The camera. The, 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 and his realisation that it's completely the wrong thing to say. And she yeah. really sticks with his realization that moment that he clicks it he just completely screwed up yeah um, which is a nice moment actually and that's that somewhat does humanize him well he that comes moment across of, as, a, as a real hero he comes across yeah. as the anti-assange almost up until that point because mm. there's, there's an amazing um, press conference after the arab spring yep. where he's taking on the um telcos the egyptian Egypt, telcos yeah and he's yeah. just screaming at them about i'm oh, not even screaming at them they're screaming at him but he's very calmly yeah. saying you know you can't you you have a responsibility mm. um, and it's very eloquent and it's Humble, and it's you really. I mean, I remember being really struck by him, and it's like, oh, I hope this guy doesn't turn out to be a jerk. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is such a weird film. It's I, so I had, strange. I had so much trouble getting my head around it, and and I think part of the problem I actually have with Laura Laura Poitras is I think she's more of a journalist than a documentary I filmmaker. Think that's a really good observation. And I, she doesn't connect the pieces enough for me. Like there is a lot of stuff in this film where I wasn't quite. To, I'm, I'm feeling nervous admitting this, but I wasn't always quite too sure what was going on or what I was seeing. Um, that, that scene with Lady Gaga f- f- is a really overt moment where I just thought, where's the context? Right. What are we watching? Yeah. Where has this come from? Yeah. But it's almost like a video sort of, diary in that there's no... And she kind of frames it almost like a video diary in that there's yeah. no narrative. Yeah. And it's, you know, just even the, the production history of this between, yeah. between Khan, you know, having these two different cuts. And she does talk about this in her voiceover, you know, that, that it's a story that she can't get her own head around. But mm. what the, the problem with that is that it just feels like an unfinished film. I think even the stuff that we've seen with Assange in the last couple of weeks, yeah. you know, this is a story that's not stopped. I think that she's... It just feels like the film's out now because she just wants her part of this story to be over. I it does capture, yeah, the changing love affair we've had with him as well. Like, he, he was the darling for a while and then over the last couple of years and the last few months, 
you know, a, a, a lot of the people on one end of the political spectrum have really had to radically rethink how they feel about him. I, and I think this film captures that confusion. I was watching this and I was remembering, I'd totally forgotten about it, but going to a WikiLeaks protest in Melbourne maybe around 2009, 2010, but that's just off the top of my head. But there were these amazing women carrying leaks. It was this huge march in the <laughs> CBD from, I think we went from the, in the state the library. Yeah, leaks. <laughs> and they were wait- that, was like the, that was like the symbol yeah. of this, wiki, this pro-WikiLeaks march. And they were singing You're the Voice. There were just all these amazing wow. tattooed women singing You're the Voice, like pro-Assange signs. And mm. it's like, that is that is incomprehensible to me now and it's more incomprehensible after seeing this documentary. I cut you off there, Mark. What were you going to say before? I have no no idea. But the thing thing that that reminds me of the other bit that was uncomfortable in the film for me when there's that young male protester outside the courts of protesting on Assange's behalf and the journalist says to him, yeah, what if if he is guilty? Oh, um, well, obviously that would be a bad thing. And you can see the guy sort of breaking down and he's caught between this sense of wanting to believe in Assange's cause and then thinking, well, maybe I'm part of the problem as well. You know, the, this underlying, you know, we talked about this misogyny of the, the community. But I, I think Alex's point that perhaps we're not ready to make these films is a, is a good one because yeah. I'm wondering why we can't do this well. Snowden too, the, the Oliver Stone um, film, felt like it should be so important. Yeah. It's I mean, still, it's still so an vital. ongoing story. The story. There's no narrative that has unfolded yet. Yeah. Well, that's the difference between, between being a journalist and being a documentary yeah, filmmaker. That's exactly, you're exactly right. Poitras, as a journalist, wants to get this story out now mm. because it's going to influence how we now look at future events where maybe the documentary filmmaker needed to sit with the story better to wrap their head around what going on and i think that's why citizen four works because there, there is a this, time there past. is and there is a sense at the end of it that there, there has been a shift yeah the, the story is now different goodness don't even know whether we can recommend risk to you or not i'm i am glad i saw it but i'm still wrapping my head around it tonight we've discussed whitney can i be me that's on general release courtesy of rialto distribution Keddy is on limited release, courtesy of High Gloss Entertainment. And Risk is screening at Cinema Nova, courtesy of Man Man Entertainment. You've been listening to Thomas Cordwell, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Mike Bartlett on Plato's Cave. The podcast version of the show is edited by Faith Everard. Mike, thank you so much for coming on tonight. It's such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I think you did very well. We'll have to have you back. (laughs) I was was worried that I'd spoiled my pitch with the whole dog person. (laughs) So that's, that's good to hear. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.